the biggest problem that my wife Kate and I have in our marriage isn't with intimacy, it's not money, it's not children, it's not busy schedule, it's rarely communication issues, because when it when it comes to intimacy, we, like we figured out how to communicate to each other where we're at and what we need. When it comes to money, we got a system. When it comes to kids, we are 99% of the time uh, on the same page. When it comes to busy schedules, we have we've figured out how to carve away time every single week for her and I to go out to have date night and to spend some time just collecting our thoughts, sharing them with each other, filtering through the garbage. Like we figured out how to do some of this stuff. Now, we'll be married 20 years in July, which to some of you, that, that's, not a, that's not a long time. To some of you, it's just like 20 years. Like, so we figured some of this, some of this stuff out. But, but, but that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we're immune from fighting and arguing. Um, in the last two weeks, we've had, we've had two decent Donnybrooks. Um, at my house. Um, the biggest issue that we have in our relationship is I love having her as a friend and she loves having me as a friend. Now, that doesn't sound like a problem. Does it? it doesn't sound like it's a problem. Well, that doesn't sound like a problem at all. Well, it, 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 I mean, yes and no. It doesn't sound like that's a problem, but, but here, here, herein lies the problem. That's the thing oftentimes that we fight to keep, the friendship. And so think about the things you have to do sometimes to keep friendships. Sometimes parts of you have to go and die. Sometimes parts of them have to go and die. Sometimes you have to kind of blind yourself to some of the things about somebody so that you can continue to be their friend. And in a marriage, you don't have the luxury of being able to have them away from you for any amount of time. See, here's the upside of me and my friends. They don't live with me and I don't live with them. So we can continue to like each other. I don't know if you're aware of this in marriage, but when you live together, you're not nearly as cool as maybe other people think you are. And neither is she. The biggest issue that we have inside of our relationship is I refuse to see her like I see my enemies. If I would choose to see her like I see my enemies, then we could begin to build a strong marriage. But only then. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but, but, it's, but it's true. You have to look at your spouse like you see your enemy. So here's a couple of questions for you. How do you see an enemy? Well, see, you kind of move over into the realm of coping skills when you encounter an enemy, correct? Like you just move into, just automatically move into coping skills. And there's two really, really good coping skills, all right? Um, one is avoidance. You learn how to avoid that enemy. The other one's anger, which is the opposite of avoiding if you wanted to know. That's where you go on a, I'm going to find them. 
I'm going to line them out. I'm going to get them in. One of my favorite lines my family hears me say, I'll get him and Jesus on the same page today. So like, there might not be anything more unchristian that comes. I'm going to get them on the same page today. That's how we treat an enemy. Avoid them or anger. It's avoidance or anger. Those are coping skills. You see, when it comes to an enemy, there's only one way you can handle an enemy, and that is apart from yourself. You don't have the capabilities of loving your enemy as Jesus suggests we should do. In fact, maybe some scripture would help clarify this just a little bit. Proverbs 25 says this, 25 verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 41 through 45 says this. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Luke 6 says this, but love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. If you're a Christian, as Mike was saying a minute ago, if you have made this decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, then I'm talking specifically to you. This applies to you. This is the command on your life. If you have not, you, you have free reign to do whatever you want to with your enemies, and that's, that's completely up to you. But if you have committed your life to Christ, here's what our king says we're to do with an enemy. Pray for them. Give to them. Be generous to them. Forgive them if they require something difficult of you, such as walking a mile, then go too. This is the command from the king. Like a hear ye, hear ye, if you've been baptized, here's what Jesus says you were to do with your enemy. Now here's the genius of it. You cannot naturally do those things from your human heart to your enemy. You cannot do it. I've had a couple of enemies in my life, and I'm telling you, I cannot forgive them, tolerate them, want to be around them, unless it's Jesus who does the work in me first. Think about when somebody hurts you. Think about what an enemy really does. Answer just, or just reflect on a couple of these questions. With whom are you most vulnerable in your life? Who knows you well enough to push all your buttons at once? Who can hurt you in the most personal way? That is an enemy. And simultaneously, it can be a spouse. When we begin to understand marriage as something that requires the work of God in our life to, listen, to survive 
and to thrive, when we realize that, what happens is something changes in us and our marriage elevates from human status to something spiritual. But it can't go there otherwise. Listen, I cannot, well, let me start with her. She cannot love me with what she has. She's a good person, but I am a maniac. She can't love me on her own initiative and capability. She cannot do it. I'm impossible. I'm absolutely impossible. I can't love her on my own accord either. And the sooner I get to move her from the way I see her as a friend and trying to cherish the friendship to how would I treat an enemy, now I know exactly what the king would have me do. And if the call to treat an enemy is this, how much more better? More better? I like it. How much more better should I treat my spouse? A lot's more better. <laughs> if that's how I'm supposed to treat an enemy, then how should I treat my spouse? But see, the problem is this. We let down our guard with our spouse, right? An enemy, you're on guard. With a spouse, you open up. With an enemy, you're blocked up. Like, look here, guy. I know this guy. He's a tricky, tricky guy. And I don't trust this guy one single bit. Not one single bit. But with your spouse, it's like, oh my gosh, a dagger in the heart. Like, why? Why? Why would you do that? It's like, well, I had a bad day. Oh, so now we just murder each other with our eyes and words because you had a bad day? I stand before you vulnerable and you take full advantage of that? Like, yeah, you're gonna need Jesus to survive that. You have to. You can't do it on your own. Like, he has got to make a transformation in you. Here's the hardest part about marriage counseling, um, and I love it. And I've said this before, I love sitting down with couples and talking about marriage. But here's one of the hardest things to ever get across to somebody. He is not your problem, ma'am. She is not your problem, sir. You are your problem, ma'am. You are your problem, sir. Mike and Kathy McEwen... Mike, who just did the community meditation, they, uh, they do a, a marriage class. And in one part of the marriage class, they talk about um, owning your own stuff. And so the way Mike will say it to you, if you were ever to go to Mike and Kathy and say, can we talk to you about our marriage a little bit? This is where they will begin with you. Okay, here's the thing. What I want you to do is write your name on a piece of paper. Okay, then what? Okay, now I want you to draw a circle around it. Oh, okay, then what? Um, now I want you to fix everything in the circle before you criticize anything about him. Is there a different class I can go to? <laughs> as, one, as one counselor said, most of the time counseling sessions is one walking in and saying, will you hold him while I hit him? That's the trouble. I open my heart to make her my friend and I go dumb. I quit relying on Jesus and I think my heart and my emotions are gonna carry me through in this relationship and it's gonna be this forever overflowing and free fall romantic feelings that I have for this wonderful, beautiful woman and then she betrays me on some very minor level and I wanna come undone. This is where we land. 
The problem isn't that her and I are friends. It's easy to be my wife's friend. Let me tell you why. Number one, she's pretty. Number two, she's funny. Number three, so am I. It's easy. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's easy for her and I to be friends. It's not easy for her and I to look at each other as enemies and then treat them as such. That requires Jesus, and oftentimes I leave him out of that loop. That's the trouble we have. When you begin to reflect on who are the people who could hurt you most, who knows all the buttons on you to push, who can hurt you in a personal way, that's a spouse. That's a spouse. We're opening up to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. If you were here last week, if you were not here last week, I would, I would encourage you to go back and listen to um, last week's sermon uh, over Song of Solomon, chapter 4. That was their honeymoon. Just prior to that, they were in this courting or dating relationship And they were just beginning to have conversation about one another. Chapter 2, there's this sudden intensity that begins to build. And they begin to build the foundational uh, bricks for their relationship. And they start having conversations and finishing each other's sentences. And that's in chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 1, it's just pure enamored. Like they are just swept up in who each other is as an individual. And he can't stop seeing her in a certain light. And she can't stop seeing the negative aspects of herself and they begin to build on this relationship so just last week we talked about the honeymoon and it is 15 verses of Solomon quoting the most erotic and uh, romantic poems and lines that he could possibly come up with and she speaks one line which which um, is basically translated as um, turn off the lights close the doors put the kids to bed me and you got some business to tend to and then we come over on the other side. You know, there's a reason they say this phrase. Well, the honeymoon's over. This is what they do. I mean, they say, we say this. Ah, honeymoon's over. There's a reason we say it. Song of Solomon chapter 5 is part of the reason we say the honeymoon is over. Let me read you Song of Solomon chapter 5. Verse 1 is a reflection of, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 is a reflection of, of the previous chapter, the honeymoon. And they are absolutely swept up. Solomon speaks in chapter one, I mean chapter five, verse one, and this is what he says. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And then down below, the friends speak up. Eat, O friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. It is pure celebration for everyone involved. It's a wonderful relationship. They've consummated the marriage. They are buddies. They are friends. They are lovers. They cannot get enough of each other. And then the dude does just what all dudes do. He assumes that on some level, if he were to say the same words he said on the honeymoon night, Perhaps it would yield the same reward as it did on the honeymoon night. Now, let me tell you something. When I was in the seventh grade, I was issued a locker. 
my locker with my, with my um, other folders from the office at the beginning of the school year, they gave me this crumpled up piece of paper. On this crumpled up piece of paper, it said this, 27, 13, 49. Do you know what those go to? My locker. When I took that dial and I turned it 27, 14, or whatever it was, 49, I could then open the locker and it would have all my stuff right there in the middle. Like perfectly. It opens the locker every single time. Guys, can I tell you what I know from my exhaustive wisdom of being married? My wife is not a locker. The combination that worked the first time did not, does not, and will not always work the second time. I want you to notice Solomon's words. We're going to get to it. Let me, let me tell you what happens right here. Ch- uh, chapter 5, verse 2. The woman speaks, and this is what she says. I slept, but my heart was awake. Here she says, listen, my lover is knocking. In quotes, now he speaks. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with the dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Is there any question what's going on here? No? No question? Okay. Listen, this is his very best lines. Now, ladies, I'm sure you've already noticed this. But what is different about these, this line right here versus the previous chapter? Oh, about mm, 364 words. Do you notice he gives her the Cliff Notes version this time? In chapter 4, what he says to her is, um, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. He uses all that in chapter 4. But then he gets over here, and this is how he does it. Before, it took 30, 40 minutes for him to quote all this poetry. Now he's like, ah, let's see, what do I have on the list? My sister... Darling, bruh, like, you're pretty, right? so you, you want to go to bed? It's the condensed version. You'll love her response. She says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert the sigh. <sighs> I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? You know what the literal Hebrew is here? I have a headache. Not interested. I'm tired. I got to get up early. Whatever it is, her response is, ugh, you're like a puppy. Like, get, like, go away. No. And she pushed it like, ugh. Shoes him back. He approaches her and she shoes him back. Now, I can tell you from hours and hours and hours of setting with couples, this right here is a very, very tender topic. It's a very tender topic. Oftentimes, ladies um, look at this situation like this and go, What's the big deal? And the guy struggles to put it into words exactly what he needs to say about how his body and his heart and emotions are connected in this intimate connection with his wife. He struggles. 
Here's part of the problem, though. If he feels as if he has opened himself up and he is vulnerable in this moment to share what is on his heart, what he has as far as emotional and physical needs, and then he is rejected, I have seen some really, really good men go to some really, really bad places. Emotionally. And you know what they do? They begin to see their wife with coping skills like they would deal with an enemy. Anger or avoidance. And so what the man does is he shuts down the power grid of pure emotion. Then I'll starve you out if you're going to starve me out. And this is how we act. If you're going to rob me, then I'm going to rob you. One of the problems we have is oftentimes we get into a fray like this and we react, which is the word reenact. So if you feel robbed, what you feel like you should do is mirror what you saw. I experienced robbery, so now you will experience robbery. And if you cheat me, then I'll cheat you. And really good marriages have fallen apart because they couldn't figure out this piece of the puzzle. How are we supposed to respond in these moments, in these times? I want to share share a couple of things with you. Notice how many times in those verses, in his speech, the word my is used. He begins, open to me, my sister, My darling, my dove, my flawless one, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. My, 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 me, 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 me. And I'm telling you, inside of an intimate relationship with your spouse, when dudes approach their spouse, me, 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 then you're probably going to get a door slammed right in your face. And she's going to reenact what she saw. Look at her response. Verse 3. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Do you notice what we do? We get into conflict, and then it's all of a sudden like, all right, pick your, pick your, uh, pick your team. We are obviously not on the same team. Now, I'm over here in the my camp, and you're over there in the I camp. And so we build up this resentment between one another because one person goes selfish and the other person goes selfish. How do we fix it? Perhaps we need to look at our spouse like we look at our enemy. There is some conjecture on what... uh, the second part of verse two is. Uh, some suggest when he says, uh, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Some assume this is a romantic notion that he has traveled a vast distance through the night to be present with the person and now he stands there before her and he is now pleading his case. I've been away, I just wanna be with you, I just wanna connect, I just need this for you and for me. That's, that's one thought. The other one is that this is a leveraging. My head is wet because I've been sweating and working all day. Now it's leverage, so now give me what you 
owe me. The third one is this. That these are euphemistic in nature, thus requiring me to leave them in your imagination, not mine. You can play with those metaphors all you want. I'm not going to. Um, regardless, there is something here for all of us. The selfishness aspect. It's about me. Me, 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 me. I will be, I will be transparent enough to have this conversation with you. My wife and I had this encounter um, years ago in our relationship, and she said, is this our sex life or yours? It's a good question. And she was right. Notice what she says. Must I have taken off my robe? Must I put it on again? Now, if you're a guy, what you do is you look at this and you go, your robe's off, right? We're halfway there. Like, don't, we'll leave it alone. It's fine. Let me tell you what I, think, what I think this means. What she is saying is this. Must I put on that effort? Must I put on that effort? Must I put on this person that I need to be for this to happen? You know those moments when you feel sacrificial, when you feel generous, when you go the extra mile, and it's as if you have put something else on you. And she says, I have already taken off my makeup. I have already done everything that I need to do. I'm done, okay? I'm done. I'm done. If I lay down in bed at night and my wife rolls over to me and she goes, oh, can I talk to you about tomorrow? The answer is no, no. The answer is no. Like it's, and we've had, this, we've had this argument and we've had to go back and revisit it. I'll lay down and when she lays down, she begins to think about dates and times and events that are gonna go on tomorrow. I'm not thinking about anything that has to do with whatever's happening tomorrow. There's two things that are gonna be on my mind. One of them is going to sleep and the other one is not. And so if we lay down in bed, I do not want, no, that is not a place for us to do business. Hey, would you get out your day timer and start? Would you put this in your, no, I won't. And I've looked at her before and I said, hey, listen, uh, no, uh, no, I'm done. Like the machine's off, like the machine's off. I'm not doing it. It's over. Nope, nope, not doing it. <sighs> Can we talk about it in the morning? Absolutely. Yes, there's no problem there. But now, no, not at all. Consequently, there are also times when we will go to bed and I will go to bed late. And so if she happens to go to bed late and we go to bed together, I know whatever I think my chances might be for her and I to connect is very, very minimal because my wife could sleep 20 hours a day. I sleep four and a half. She sleeps 20, I can sleep four and a half but it doesn't work. So if I want to spend that time, I have to be good with my schedule. If she wants to talk to me about what's on her mind, we have to do that during daylight hours. Otherwise, everything's shut down. And she will look me in the face and say, sorry, the amusement park is shut down. It's shut down. Every ride in the place is shut down. Like, oh, so I have to do diligent work, and so does she, for us to be able to exchange in ways to have our needs fulfilled. 
I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? Here's what the book of Job says. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Here's what Galatians says. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves. Here's what Ephesians says. To put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness. Colossians says it this way. Such restrictions indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-prescribed worship and false humility and harsh treatment of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Therefore, we put on Christ. Colossians 3 says this, we have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of our creator. That is this. She says, I've already taken all of this off. Must I put this back on? Do I need to be this person now at this moment? This is, a, uh, this is a tough deal. Let me tell you what happens when we can't connect when it comes to intimacy. For a husband and a wife to not be able to connect due to whatever the reason is, poor communication, poor scheduling, not being diligent enough with it, if we cannot get that part right, here's what we end up having uh, uh, unfold for us when men are selfish with their love in expressions with words romance sensitivity or access to emotion women you can you can you can say amen here if you feel this way women will not feel valued for who they are but only what they can give let me read it one more time when men are selfish with their love in the expressions of words, romance, sensitivity, or access to emotion, women will not feel valued for who they are, but only for what they can give. However, when women are selfish with their love in the expression of respect, appreciation, honor, and their bodies, men will not feel as if they are valued for who they are, but only for what they can give. It's the same problem. It's the same problem every single time. When a woman becomes selfish and she withholds herself from her husband, what you get in a man is a man who feels like all he does is just do the hard work and there's no pay. Listen, ladies, let me tell you something about a man. A man can go to work and work 40 hours a week and not get a paycheck if he and you are good. True, right? Like it's like, yeah, I mean, we're going to cover the bills, we're going to get it done. Yep, yep. All right, then we're good. So long as that is good. Ladies, you could probably live in a shanty if you live with a man who is a king when it comes to his words, his actions, his expressions of love and romance, there is no longer a husband and a wife when we get to this place. Let me read to you what I think a husband and a wife become. They are not now joining together, and this is exactly what marital intimacy is. Marital intimacy is the celebration of two people who really like and love each other. That's what it is. You come together as a celebration because I like you and you like me, and what we need is this moment together privately. The world has tattered us, and we need this from each other. But it's no longer that. 
When we screw up this piece here, it's no longer that. Here's what it is. Now this man is an emasculated fool forced to play the role of a domesticated pack mule. That's what a man becomes who has been cut off from his wife in physical intimacy. He is now this emasculated fool playing the role of a domesticated pack mule. Get the stroller. Get the babies. Would you go do this? Would you take out the trash? Would you do this? And it's like, can I feel like a man in one area of my life? I'll do the rest for nothing. But I need this unfortunately for ladies this is what it turns into now this domesticated pat mule is now with a woman who was brought into a legally binding agreement under the pretenses of love and affection who is now robbed of that promise and her existence is now reduced to nothing more than a supplier of momentary satisfaction before her husband rolls off and goes to sleep Your life has been reduced to being this momentary supplier of satisfaction. It's no longer love. In fact, it's as if you've become a woman of the night except without the transaction. This is what we do inside of our marriages when we begin to cheat one another out of the things that we so desperately need. And it goes both ways. It's men and it's women. Like men don't think to themselves, well, I would never shut her off. I would never close her out. I would never cut her off. Oh, but you do. Emotionally, you do. They need something different than what we need. Now, I don't like to speak in generalities because that's not always true, but most of the time, this is where we line up. Men need something on an emotional and physical level, and ladies need something on this other level of emotion and, and mental uh, and, and, and uh, spiritual connection. They need to know that they're good, that they're safe, that they're friends, that things are good on the inside. And we begin to rob each other of that. It becomes a problem. Let me read you this verse from 1 Corinthians. This is, uh, I wish there was a women's lib movement right now who was overhearing this passage. For those people who ever look at scripture and go, well, it's a little dated, it's a little sexist, it's a little archaic. I don't think that it really puts men and women on the same playing field. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 7. Now concerning, this is the Apostle Paul speaking uh, to, the, uh, to the church in Corinth. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of sexual immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise, the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now most people would love that verse to stop right there. Listen to what it says. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish all men were as I am. 
However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this way and another in that. Listen to what he says. Fulfill your duty. Here's the word. Fulfill means give back, return it. You ever got a library book? There's expectation. Did you come get this? Yeah, okay. You have an obligation to take that back. Like you have an obligation to take that back. This is the word. Fulfill. Do what you said you were gonna do. Like this is the obligation. This is the agreement you came into. When you said your I do's, this is the agreement. You and I will not deprive each other of our, of our needs inside of our marriage. Fulfill. He says, to, he says to the wife, fulfill your end. He says to the husband, fulfill your end. It means give back, return, restore, render. Listen, as if it were a payment. These are the terms that the Apostle Paul uses in talking about this, um, this, this moment of connection for husbands and wives. The next thing, fulfill his duty. You know what this is? What is due? Your debt. Your debt. Your debt to your husband, your debt to your wife. Listen, this is so balanced. This is one of the most balanced passages you're ever going to find. Ladies, are you, are you robbing this guy of the intimacy that he needs? Okay, you're wrong. Men, are you robbing this gal of the intimacy that she needs? Okay, you're wrong. You owe him and you owe her. Do your job and do your job. You made a covenant with one another. Now get your act together and stop acting like siblings. Stop looking at one another like, well, I'm not doing it because you're gonna try to make me and you're gonna tattle and I'm gonna tattle and I'm gonna tell on you. Like this is the ridiculousness of what happens inside of marriage. We become so good buddies with one another that we treat each other like we're siblings and then we argue and we bicker and we fight and what God says, look at her as if she were an enemy. Now treat her like that. And you look at him like he's an enemy and you treat him like that. What do you think would happen to marriages if we would start seeing each other like we are supposed to see our enemies instead of like our buddy? We wouldn't pipe off at him. We wouldn't carve into him with our words. We wouldn't withhold what it is that they need. Stop depriving each other. This is the word defrauding, meaning taking what is not yours. Like take you, like you don't get to keep that. It doesn't belong to you. I don't know if you know this, but the two become one in relationship. Now you are one. Listen what else it says. What is the purpose? You can stop. You can put the brakes on that in the moment that you decide you're going to fast. This is the word, to empty yourself out to fast. You and your spouse can separate from one another in, the marital, in, in marital intimacy for the reason of praying. For praying. And how long? Until you finish praying, for however long that is, at your leisure, that's your discretion, and then it says, then come back together as you were. Why? So that you were not tempted because of your lack of self-control. Like scripture gives us a handbook on how to see this. But here's the problem. We go into this place of, well, if I don't get mine, then you don't get yours. Listen how this guy responds to this though. Verse four and five. 
She says, my lover thrust his hand through the latch opening and my heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. So this is the way I understand it. These doors back in the day had a latch that you could put through on the other side. And the only reason the latch wouldn't be out is because there was somebody inside and they didn't want you in. So at night you would close your door and you'd pull the latch in on the inside. He reaches to get to the latch and he can't get to the latch. Instead what he does is he takes liquid myrrh and he puts it across the handle. Liquid myrrh across the handle. This is seen as a blessing, a valentine, if you will. It's a love note sprayed with perfume, your favorite perfume. It's maybe sunflowers or um, vanilla fields or whatever it is, exclamation. Well, I, don't, I don't know. You sprayed it and you sealed it and you gave it. Mm, I love this. When I read the... And what he does is he takes this perfume and he puts it across the lock of the door. He blesses the very obstacle that stands in his way. She is selfish to him, and he responds in kindness. Now, this is where we do it, avoidance or anger. She's going to pay tomorrow, roll over, and be hacked. Or, that's fine. That's fine. I'm going to withhold every other thing from you, but not him. He blesses it. You know what he does? This is the equivalent of waking up in the morning, her rolling over, finding a rose on her pillow and a love note that says, hey, I just want you to know, me and you are good. I know we didn't connect, but me and you are good. Like, we're okay. When we have conflict with our spouse, we must reach for the myrrh. That is the spiritual ointment that's the spiritual help that is the thing we do where we reach for what we reach for when we're dealing with an enemy this is what we do we reach for that how can god change me in this listen if you're in a place right now to where you and your spouse are having some issues and you cannot connect on this level i want you to begin to ask this question what's the problem write your name on a piece of paper Draw a circle around it, and then fix everything inside the circle before you criticize anything else about her, and vice versa. What happens if we grow angry in situations like this? Men, specifically, let me, let me talk to you for just a second. What happens if, if we grow angry in these situations? Well, number one, guys, let me tell you something, because sometimes in your anger, you don't, you don't think all the way through this. It's pretty self-defeating for the goal, okay? Like you can get yourself mad about something. It's pretty self-defeating for the, for the ultimate goal, okay? Some of you are looking at me like with these, with these looks on your face like, I'm afraid I don't. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's self-defeating for the ultimate goal. Here's the other problem with it. You get in the way of the Lord's work. You know what it's like working with your dad on a vehicle? Hey, Mike, would you shut those back doors for just a second? Thanks, buddy. You know what it's like working with your dad on a vehicle? You know when your dad gets tools out and you're standing there and you're younger and you're trying to, you're like, can I help you with the, and you're you're like, well, maybe we should get a hammer. And your dad's like, what is wrong with you? There's something seriously wrong with you. Like, you can't. Like, you're in the way. 
Like, and I felt that before. My, my dad, he wants me out there. He wants me to crawl underneath this, you know, whatever year it was, Dodge Dart, and we're going to change the transmission in it. One he got from the salvage yard, and so we're going to pull it out, and we're going to put this new one in. I'm underneath there. I'm like, I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to be doing with this thing. And he's just like, pay attention. And I'm like, to what? Like, I don't even know what, it, I'm in the way. I'm just in the way. And you know when you're working on a project and your kids come in and you're like, they are really in the way. God is in the same exact place. Men, if you try to manipulate, you try to maneuver in such a way to manipulate your spouse or get angry with your spouse or cut your spouse off, find, I mean, uh, emotionally, you get yourself in that place. Do you know what you just did? You just crawled right into the middle of God's workspace. That is not your workspace. You have to leave room for God to work. Here's what Romans chapter 12 says. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. If you punish your wife for something that she does to you, or wives, you punish your husband for something that he did to you, what you've done is you've stepped into the place of God, and now you are trying to run the cosmos. And I've seen what you've done to your bathrooms, the back seats of your cars, um, your purses, you, you're not fit for dealing with the cosmos, okay? Like, you don't have that, so you need to get out of that realm. Like, you can't do that. Like, what you can do is this. Back yourself up, don't react, and go, I'm gonna let God deal with this man. I've told you before, there's been moments, Kate now getting in an argument, and she will stop. What are you doing? What, do- what are you doing? What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? I'm talking to the Lord about you. (laughs) You have to back yourself up out of that situation. You cannot take revenge on that man. Who's going to get him better than you, God? Hey, guys, you want to get her? Let God get her. Like, he can get her better than you can get her. Sure, it feels good to lash out in anger, but let him do the work on her. That's what he does. Your job is to stay consistent and continue to love this person who is now your enemy. And you love her with every single bit of what you have. How does God deal with this woman? If you remember in chapter three of Song of Solomon, here's what we dealt with. Right before she decides that she wants to be engaged and married to this man, it says that she left her home and she went out about the city and she encountered these watchmen. And it says, scarcely had I encountered these watchmen when I found the one that my heart so desires. And what we talked about was this, that these watchmen represent the Holy Spirit in the life of this woman. And so she encounters the watchmen and the watchmen say, that's the man that you want right there, go get him. And so she pursues him, and she has a marriage with this man. Now, she's going to encounter these watchmen again, the Holy Spirit. And listen how the Holy Spirit treats her in this moment. Verse 5, I mean, chapter 5, verse 6. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but I did not find him. I called for him, but he did not answer. And then the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. And they beat me and they bruised me and they took away my cloak. Oh, those watchmen of the wall, 
And then we've heard this refrain again, O daughters of Jerusalem. She starts off, O daughters of Jerusalem. Before, it's been this, O daughters of Jerusalem. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen to what she says this time. O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him, I'm faint with love. Tell him I'm sorry. Tell him I'm sorry. It was a mistake. And what the Holy Spirit does in this moment is the Holy Spirit steps in and it begins to do work on your spouse. If you want to punish your spouse, then you cannot expect God to change your marriage. Let me say it again. If you keep punishing your spouse, God is not changing that man for you. He will let you try to change him. And I promise you, you cannot change that man. He will only get more angry or more avoiding. Men, if you keep trying to change your wife and you keep trying to make her something that she's not, and you just keep manipulating and manipulating, hounding her and pushing her, here's what's going to happen. God's not going to step in and begin to work on her heart. She's just going to grow bitter. And the more, the more bitter she becomes and the colder she becomes, the more closed off she becomes. Our responsibility, men, and primarily this conversation here lands on us. This lands on us. Like our job is not to then, okay, so we risk on the approach. We open up and we share our heart and our emotions and our needs and we put it out there to get rejected. Here's the deal. Be strong enough of an individual that that's okay. You don't have to go tuck your tail and whine and cry in a corner. You can just sit back and go, you know what? That's okay. That's okay. We all have off days. I'm sure if I were, if you were to ask my wife, has there, has there ever been days where Jared just decides like he's just not going to be an affectionate, romantic person? She would say, oh yeah, I know. There's plenty of times. In fact, you're gonna think, you're gonna think this is very romantic. On, um, on uh, Valentine's Day, I didn't get my wife anything. I didn't get her a card. I didn't get her chocolates. I didn't get her anything. What I told her was, here's the deal. I'm gonna go ahead and take today off. It's the one day I'm not going to be romantic. And she said, you're an idiot. Like, you're an idiot. Yes, of course there are times that I have let down my guard. How can I hold her to a standard that I have not met myself? Men, have you just been absolutely gushing with your words and emotion and communication with your spouse, being that faithful, loving, tender, gentle person? Okay, then why in the world would you expect something on the other side to change for her? We cannot change one another. We go to God and then God changes them. Solomon puts myrrh on the lock, the thing that holds him back from what he so desires. And then the Holy Spirit does the work on her and then she comes running back saying, I was wrong, I was wrong. I don't know if you know this or not, 1850s. Guy by the name of William Holman Hunt painted a picture, and this picture can probably be seen. We probably have a copy of it somewhere in this building. It's called Light of the World. And on it, there's a picture of Jesus, and he's holding a lamp, and he's knocking on a door. And if you go and you Google these, Google these pictures, what you'll find is that almost, almost every single picture of Light of the World and, and, and the and all the replicas that have been made, and people who have redone the painting over and over and over, there will be very, 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 very few that have any door 
knob or latch on the outside of the door. It's always on the inside of the door. This is how we keep our autonomy inside of our marriage to where I know where she is and what she has and that is one of the most valuable things in my world and I'm on the other side and I know what I have is one of the most valuable things to her and my approach has got to be this gentlemanly approach to where I, be sh I am sure to express everything I need to express and then if I'm denied then my response is to do what Christ did and that is not to kick down the door like I'm a part of the LAPD. That is for me to take liquid myrrh and put on the door lock so that she knows, hey, I don't know what's going on with you. Maybe you got something that's going on inside and, 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 and you're just emotionally just not in a good place. But I want you to know we are good. And if you're not, then I am good. Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us where he stands on the outside of the door and he knocks on a door that has no knob and he waits for someone to pull it open from the inside. Men, our responsibility is to be Christ in our homes. That's our approach to our spouse. Now, let me tell you this. I can, I can be honest with you. I have screwed this up so many times in my marriage. And she has done the same. And we've had, to, we've had to say, we're sorry. We've had to apologize over and over. We've had to work through it. We've had to have uncomfortable conversations about it. But I can promise you this. When we finally decided that we were going to see each other like an enemy, everything changed. Then we could really, truly appreciate our friendship with one another. Here's what scripture says. You are no longer enemies of God. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. That's his call to you. This series is called Manifest, and the reason we called it that is because if we get this part of our life right, if Christian couples can get this part of their life right, what happens is we move out into the world and other people look and go, that's a miracle that your marriage has stayed together this long, and you look at them and you go, you're exactly right, it's a miracle. You're exactly right, it is a miracle. It's a miracle every single day she chooses to count on Jesus and the love of Christ to deal with me and I do the same. The book of Colossians says it this way, I struggle with all of Christ's energy that so powerfully works in me. What that means is I pull the, I pull the uh, garden hose out of my own gas tank and I put it over into Jesus' gas tank and I siphon from there because I don't have any in mind. What's it take to love me? That, all of, the, all of the power and the love of Christ, that's what it takes to love me and me the same for her. This is what our marriages are supposed to look like. We'll get into the second half of this um, next week and um, it shouldn't take too long. But yeah, thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray and we will get out of here. Thanks for being here this morning. Appreciate it. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you so much for um, the work of your spirit the way you've moved in our hearts, the way you've moved in our church and in our community, Lord, we ask that you will begin to help us um, see our marriages the way that we need to see them, to begin to act and live inside of them, the way that you ask us to. Lord, we ask that you'll give us the strength to love our spouse better than the way we love our enemies. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Have a good afternoon. Be careful. The parking lot's a little slick out there. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Be a little careful.